Show Business When There's No Business podcast is a survivor's guide to navigating the business of show business, especially in light of current events such as COVID-19, the Black Lives Matter movement, and much, much more. As a musical theater performer who is interested in business, I interview industry professionals to talk about the business side of the industry and get their stories, advice, and hopes for the future of theater and entertainment. Hi, Ray. Thank you so much for being here today. I'm really excited to talk to you about the music industry and kind of the current climate of things right now. So thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. My pleasure. So right now, you are an associate professor of marketing and personal branding at Anderson University, which is where we met. Um, I was in a lot of your music business classes. Yep. And before that, I think you were a senior lecturer and leader of two business music business programs at Buckinghamshire New, New University. Is that yep. correct? Did I say That's it right? right. <laughs> you are saying it right. Yep. Um, and then you co-wrote the first music business program in Europe, and that was in 1996. You have presented across both Europe and the U.S. on the topic of personal branding. You're also published in academic books throughout the U.S. and the U.K. And as a personal branding coach, you work with executives, professional athletes, and chart-topping artists and musicians. Um, so that is quite a lot of information. I would love if you would kind of talk about your career journey and how you got started managing artists and your interest in the music industry. Okay. Yeah, it, it sounds quite impressive when you say it like that, but I'm, <laughs> I'll give you the layman's insight. Um, so I, I got into the academic world quite early on. So I, I graduated and I, I set up a business, uh, which was a health and fitness consultancy. And um, I then got approached by a university from their athletics department to provide consultative support for them, and I did. But in that interaction, as someone in the university in the business school discovered that my first degree was in business and that um, not only was I connected to a health and fitness consultancy, but I, from an early age in the university, ran music events and, and was a DJ. Um, and they asked me whether I'd be interested in covering a class. So I covered a class, and from the feedback, the, the resulting aspect was that an opportunity arose and it was at a time when there was an explosion in uh, business degrees that were focused on particular industries. And the industry that um, first came up was um, what we would pronounce in the UK as leisure studies. I think you guys say leisure studies. Um, but that was where we were, and it was focused on leisure and recreation, sports management, and other things. So I started teaching um, sports management, marketing, business strategy, and uh, a colleague of mine, had worked in the arts industry and we got talking and it became apparent to both of us that there was nothing in the market in regards to a music business and at that stage my musical experience was limited predominantly to DJing and performing at venues that I was running um, and also working and hiring other musical artists predominantly um, DJs more than music artists because in the UK and Europe big cultural um, aspect that's been challenged recently by COVID, but it's still there, is club culture, as they would call it. Um, so I would, you know, hire boats down the River Thames and have people on there. So we had 1,000 people, 600 people, sorry, 
on a boat going down the Thames while I was a student um, at a university in London. So all of these experiences came in. I got familiar with people in record labels. I understood some of the mechanisms of, you know, writing music, controlling it, registering it, and trying to get royalty returns on it. Um, so we went about establishing what was called at the time music industry management, and it was the first degree of its kind. And in the first year, we thought if we could get 25 students, it would be great. And I think the first year we had 75 students. Um, and it grew to 200 students. Now, some of those students I work with because they're in the music industry. So a bizarre sequence of events. But yes, that's, that's the origin of that. So you were DJing as well as hiring other DJs? Yes. Yeah. Very cool. I know from there you kind of stumbled into managing an artist and started going into an artist management route. Can you talk about your philosophy on how you manage an artist? I think what I try and do is help people bridge their talent between uh, their talent and the market because they're not exactly the same thing. If we assume just because you've got a talent that you're automatically going to find success, that's naive. Your talent has to be translated to the market and the market then has to respond and there needs to be enough of a demand construct for you to get a direct marginal or profitable return. So there right. is an art and science in that. Yeah, I was just going to say something that I really took away from some of your classes when I had you in college um, was this notion of how the music industry is an art and a science, um, and it's not just talent, and it's not just the music. There's also strategy and business decisions that go behind it. Um, and that's really my passion is the business side of these artistic industries, um, which is a big reason why I wanted to start this podcast. And that's why I was so drawn to your classes, because you always mentioned that there was an art and a science to almost any artistic venture. Yeah, I I think it comes from um, an understanding of just the the natural way of things, and and particularly my, my Christian faith, is that we are flesh we are literal, you can pinch someone and they will know you've pinched them. Um, and so you're uh, an entity, you're bi- your biology, um, and that is science. But you've also got a story, which is your biography, and that is art. So two people can dance, which is frenetic movement and arms and legs and a head. And one person you will look at and say, well, they can actually dance. And the other person you might look at and you say they can't dance. Well, actually, the parameters used to decide whether they can dance or not are both art and science, because it will be the way someone's moving, but also it'd be the way you interpret the movements. And I think as an artist, um, you know, three years that I I wrote a music business program in business school, and you were one of the recipients of this, so um, that's great. But for every three years it's been running, we've had a student in the top three in terms of GPA, um, scores and what's interesting is to see the response sometimes from fellow academics to say wow they're music business students and they can do all the business subjects really well and that gives me an indication and goes back to my origins in the music business program and the cultural difference between the UK and the US is the business program in the UK was predominantly for people that weren't musicians they were people that just wanted to be professionals in the industry to support others 
So all the students that I've worked with who are now incredibly successful, some of them, they work with other people. They could be in publishing, they could be in label management, A&R, scouting, um, they can be in product management, they can be in radio, um, there's a range. Um, but they're business people at the core. In the US, if you look at the history of music business programs, and I think if my history is right, a gentleman by the name of Jim Progress um, down at the University of Miami um, where I used to go down many years ago when I was slightly younger than I am now and do guest lectures fly over. Um, we had a relationship with them and some other universities. Um, but what you saw was most people that did music business were music um, aspirants. They were musicians. They were singers. Um, and it gave me an indication of the different cultural interpretations. Across Europe is very different from the US. So American culture, very pragmatic. So you play a guitar, or a banjo really well and you can sing, oh, you can do music business. If someone else said, I'd like to do music business, but I'm not actually a musician, in America I think people might say, why are you doing that? It doesn't make any sense. Um, and if you look at the realities of the music business, in America the majority of students or graduates that work in the music industry at the moment come from business degrees. Right. Because there isn't that recognition that you can do a music business program and do that. So you're quite unique, um, Kayla, in the fact that you are a performer, um, so you've got the, the artistic elements, but you're also a thinker and want to strategize and try and get a return on an investment for yourself or anyone else. Um, that's still relatively new in the U.S., but I'm hoping that's going to change. I hope so, too, and I hope that um, people, they'll have an easier path and maybe not um, be looked at as, you know, an outlier, um, in the future, um, as music business programs evolve and change. Can you kind of talk about, I know we talked about, um, in one of our classes, we, we really talked about how artists can brand themselves and that includes how they look and how they dress, um, how their music sounds and how that music makes their audience feel. And then, um, what they see on stage and how what they experience at a live concert or even just what they experience um, listening to the music. Okay. Um, one of the things I'd, I'd like to share is that music business um, or branding or thinking is an interdisciplinary approach. So again, a bit of a challenge sometimes culturally to set. So it means that there's um, in artist management, there's a degree of psychology, particularly if you're an artist manager who's dealing with an artist a lot on the personal level, but then you can be a business manager. So all of a sudden it's, it's a straight line numbers. Um, so managers are either both or you have a separate business manager and a personal manager. Um, and that's an interesting segue to answer your question because branding is the connective tissue between the entity, a person, uh, music and an audience. Um, right. And it's that it's a, branding is a verb, it's an action. What am I doing to create traction? The brand, singular, is the name, um, the noun, the entity. But branding is the actions that people get used to you doing. Now, if you take in um, a theory called Pareto's 80-20 rule, I think I've spoken to you before about it. Yeah. Um, it's a relationship between the 80 and the 20. And the best way to example it in America is that 80% of America's wealth is held by 20% of the population. Or um, bizarrely, this is true, um, a lot of people um, wear 20% of their clothing 80% of the time because it's their favorite. 
out That's there. definitely true for me, I think. Um, very true for lots of people. Um, so when you look at the AP20, this is the real tough one for musicians that I found. Um, 80% of who you are is your physical state. So it's you looking after yourself, diet and nutrition, uh, making sure that you're applying yourself to writing or musicianship. It's a 10,000 hours. It's all of your stewardship. That's 80% of who you are. However, the 20% that you share with others, because you've done all the work behind this backstage, when you go on stage, that's the 20% of you, is the 80% that the audience feels. And your physical presence is 20%. Oh, yeah, there's a person there. But what they're feeling is what you say to them. It's a heart say. So it's the opposite. So I'll say that again. We are all 80% flesh, bones, and all the skills we've acquired that we can deliver. But actually, we do lots of that in a 10,000-hour commitment to becoming good at something. But we then share it in 20% of our time. Because performers, if you look at performers, it's probably less than 20%. How much time do they spend performing against rehearsing and practicing? Um, you know, right. you're in musical theatre. Think about how much time is spent in preparation for the show. Right. There's definitely, especially in a, at least in a collegiate setting, there's definitely much more, you know, we would go through two months of rehearsal before doing a two-weekend run of the show. 80-20. So what you've got to then look at is your audience. They're interested in the story and how it appeals to their heart self, their emotional self. And that's why, and I've talked to you before about this, likability is such a key thing. Right. So if you, if you look at likability, it's such a complex thing because people get really upset by it, particularly if you're someone who's put in lots of work. But if you think of a two-by-two two box and uh, on the x-axis, um, you've got ability, and on the, the vertical y-axis, you've got like. And on that two-by-two two box, the bottom left-hand corner would denote low ability, low like, and clearly that's someone in a chosen field is not likely to be successful. But you get lots of people that have high ability and low like, and they are troubled music artists because what it means is they've got exceptional ability, but they're not translating it to the market. Equally, you can have people that are really liked but actually have little low ability. And guess what? They can be successful in the market. So you can have singers that can't really sing. You can have people that aren't really great musicians, but they're likable. We engage with them. We're drawn to them. And then you end up with those people that have high ability and high like, and they become the stars in the music industry. And then you can break that down again. Um, and the top right-hand corner of that top right-hand square are the musical icons. Historically, right. the Donners, the Beatles, you know, today, Drake. They're the people that are just everywhere. Um, and that's the difference between it all. Now, interestingly enough, many artists in the format era, when they were creating vinyl, CDs, tape cassettes, they were enigmas. There was a little, little you knew about them. So Prince is a good example. You knew little about them, and it was the, myst the mystique that drew you to them. However, now, in the 21st century, there's 24-hour information. So being liked now is really much more of a difficult feat because everything you say and do is recorded and people judge it. So um, Lady Gaga um, was in the film Star is Born and her like went up. Sales of a, a, a units went up. 
old albums went up because people looked at her that had never thought about Lady Gaga. Wow, she's really good. And it was a great film. And she delivered on it. Um, but equally, you can have an artist do things the other way. So there's an artist in the UK. Uh, there's a British hip-hop genre called Grime. And the godfather of Grime, not James Brown, the godfather of soul, but we've actually in the UK got the godfather of Grime. There's a guy called Wiley, W-I-L-E-Y. And he's come out with a series of anti-Semitic comments, um, chiefly because he's a manager, go back to management, <laughs> is a, a, a Jewish individual, a Jewish man who he's fallen out with. So now all of a sudden, because he thinks his manager hasn't served him well, he's come out with comments to say that all Jewish people are a particular way. Um, and he's just been banned for life on Twitter. Gotcha. So that really plays, I mean, that's playing into the whole cancel culture of today. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. I think cancel culture, you can see it two ways. And um, I've spent quite a bit of time talking about, um, diversity and inclusivity um, for the audience listening. I'm, I'm a black male from Great Britain um, with an English accent. And that can be, again, as we've discussed before, quite vexing to a culture that's not used to that. Um, but from my point of view, I've been in my body for a long time now. Um, and this has always been me. Um, so if it's new to someone, it's new to you, yes, but not new to me. And I think, again, that's important for people to understand that what we experience of another is only a bit of another because another has always existed before then. Um, and council culture at the moment, a best example for me is to wear a mask or not wear a mask is a, a challenging cycle. And that wear a mask, not wear a mask is turned into a personal branding dilemma because people are immediately judging someone based on whether they wear a mask or not. But it's really based on how they feel. So go back to heart self, the audience. You see someone with a mask, they could be your friend or they could be your foe, but it's dependent upon what you interpret from them. I'd really love to ask you um, some questions about diversity and inclusion, but I know that we're going to get to that um, in part two of this podcast episode. Um, but I'm going to go ahead and ask you about Blackout Tuesday, the movement on Instagram that was started by two um, black music executives and just ask you your thoughts um, around that movement. Yes, I think um, the core ethos behind them doing it was recognition of some of the social injustice that has been felt not just in uh, America, but the global reaction um, to the, the George Floyd um, tragedy, um, the best way to describe it. Um, and the music industry is, is not... Uh, short of accusations of uh, systemic racism and other challenges. So there's a disproportionate number of people of colour that are involved in performing. But when you look at the history of the music industry, there's um, a disproportionate amount of people from different backgrounds that have earned money from it. Um, one of the best insights into it is if there's a film um, called Ray, which is the biopic on um, Ray Charles, and he was one of the first uh, people of colour to really negotiate the ownership of his masters, etc. But he's very rare. Um, Percy Sledge wrote the lyrics to When a Man Loves a Woman. And he sold the rights to it almost in the same recording. And he spent his whole life being defined as a music artist by that brand. But he didn't earn the money from it. 
um, which is an incredible story because when a man loves a woman is Percy Sledge, but it's not in a business sense. So Blackout Tuesday speaks to those things. I think my only caveat is that they did get some criticism because it almost silenced everyone. And some people said, you shouldn't be silent. We need to talk about things. But again, as we've been discussing in this um, podcast, discussion has to be uh, two-way at least. It has to have both people involved. Um, What's interesting, um, and I mentioned it um, before about brands and personal brands doing things that are wrong, Uh, Wiley, um, a British artist of some note, has got the lifetime ban, as I said earlier, from Twitter um, for anti-Semitic comments. So suddenly you've got the complexity of diversity and inclusivity. It doesn't just mean black-white. It's got all these different nuances so it can relate to Latin X music, it can relate to the Jewish community. And if you look at the history of um, the Jewish community in the entertainment industry, they segued into there largely because of the oppression they felt in traditional business. But also there was an affiliation um, between the form of worship style um, that Jewish communities used musically. There was a crossover, and therefore you find... Um, Libra and Stoller is a good example. You'll find a profile of Jewish writers that have written songs. Um, you look at um, some of the musical theatre for uh, black performers have been written by Jewish writers. So there's this relationship between them. They had more access or they had more privilege, perhaps, to things than the black community. So Blackout Tuesday is a real complex aspect. So sorry I've given you a long-winded answer, but the reality is we've got to really understand all of the nuances because it's not just a dichotomous thing. It's very complex. But the the black community and the Jewish community are wedded in popular music, culture, and history in America. Absolutely. Thank you for going into that Um, because I I think it's so important that we not only understand the movement but what's going on underneath it and around it. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Show Business When There's No Business. If you liked this week's episode, be sure to hit the subscribe button and give us a rating so that it will help others find us too. And of course, be sure to tune in next week. Talk to you soon.